Welcome back to episode 92 of Warrior's Den. Today's guest is Dennis Hill. He runs Kramaga and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Gym, among other things, in Connecticut. The programs he runs expand to also combat Hapkido, Judo, Kali, Muay Thai, fitness, kettlebells, hit, and kids programs, of course. So a little bit about Dennis. Um, as per his website, ctkramagamma.com. Dennis Hill, chief instructor, has trained military personnel, police officers, and detectives. He is a fifth-degree black belt and master instructor in combat hapkido, a black belt in judo, a first-degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and a black belt and certified instructor in Israeli Kramaga. Dennis also trains in Kali with Paul Kitchum. He earned his certificate in kettlebells from Pavel Tatsulin and has trained in wrestling for eight years with master of sport Joseph Vigdorchik, Russian freestyle wrestler. Dennis is certified MetaFit and MetaPRW coach and certified NRA instructor. In addition, Dennis is very interested in health and wellness and is a certified precision nutrition coach, certified Dr. Sears Health Coach, Certified Diabetes Prevention Program, DPP Lifestyle Coach, and Certified Personal Trainer. He is also a DOT fit, Certified Fitness Professional. So I asked Dennis to come on because it's always interesting when someone has uh, a wide traditional martial arts background and decides to still teach Krav Maga because it's very easy for them to turn their back on Krav Maga or to bastardize it in a, in a, in a strange way. But... Here's what Dennis had to say about Krav Maga. A great system for somebody to come into and for somebody to grow in if they want something that's broad, but maybe not too deep, but it's broad. I mean, there's a lot you got to learn. And, and, you know, I mean, you got to learn your punching, your blocking, your, your blades, your sticks, your, your firearms, all of that, your grappling. But it doesn't run too deep in any of those things. And that's why I like having the other martial arts so that if you find that you're connected to this type of training keep coming to Krav Maga but if you like you know let's say grappling because that's that's a big one if you enjoy the grappling then hey cross training jujitsu how do you think of that sentiment so I really I enjoyed the fact that he understands Krav Maga is broad to deal with multiple situations not specific to the ring not specific to rules you learn broadly and then if you want to refine your specific skills, you can go learn specific skills. And this is something I personally agree with and push to my students. Learn broadly with Krav Maga so that you're prepared for the most scenarios for self-defense. And then if you want to specialize in jiu-jitsu or judo or kickboxing or boxing or Muay Thai, by all means, go for it. So we had a very awesome conversation. But first... This podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. If you want to support this podcast or UTKM in general, you can, of course, train with us locally because we're allowed to train right now. You can go to urbantacticskm.com and check out how to sign up for our classes if you are in the Metro Vancouver area in Canada. You can, of course, if you're not local, go to utkmblog.com and you can check us out and our ideas and thoughts, and I'm really happy. I'm finally getting some of my students to regularly write. It shows growth in the school, and it's just not its not just me going off on subjects all the time. I want to see the greater Krav Maga and martial arts community contribute. If you would like to get your ideas out there, you're welcome to shoot us an email at info at urban tactics. 
Canada.com, and if you're interested in writing a blog post series, let me know, because this is for all martial arts and Krav Maga practitioners. But you can check us out at utkmblog.com. It's also where I post uh, basic Krav Maga principles as uh, I teach them at UTKM under the KM Principles tab. You can learn a little bit about us and check out at least our basic curriculum. Our student handbook is there. You see how I structured it if you're interested. You can also check out the podcast. All the old podcasts are uh, here on this uh, map. Uh, sorry, on this website. Not on Spotify. I only have like the last 10 or so on Spotify and iTunes. So if you want to check out the older episodes on the podcast, you can check out com. And of course, if you just want to just support us because, hey, you like our content, it makes it so much easier when we have financial support. You can go to support us tab on utkmblog.com and donate whatever you'd like to donate, which is awesome. But of course, uh, if you want something for your money, you can and just check out how I'm teaching, what I'm teaching, at least as a basic right now. Uh, you can go to www.utkmu.com and start learning as we teach it. Uh, do not hand out online rankings, so don't ask. It is meant simply meant as a supplement to my students and to your current Krav Maga training. If you're just interested in seeing how we structure curriculum here or just checking out my approach, you can check that out. It's still a work in progress, but the more students uh, that sign up for it, the quicker I'll get onto it to make it better, as I plan on making that a full inclusive site uh, in the long run as we build stuff up. You can sign up to get a no uh, beginner uh, package uh, where you just get your beginner curriculum either annually or monthly or our novice where you get beginner and all the way up to orange belt curriculum the advanced curriculum is not available yet but maybe in the future with some limitations so check that out at www.utkmu.com and again if you want to check out uh, Dennis you can check out his website at ctkramaga.mma Dot com and you can shoot him an info, uh, email at info at ctkramagamma.com or give him a call if you're in the Connecticut North Brantford area, 203-484-2020 uh, and tell him you found out about him from our podcast if you're not already training with him. Oh, and don't forget to check us out at social media, on social media, Urban Tactics Kramaga on Instagram, Urban Tactics Cam on Twitter, and urban tactics kramaga on facebook i had to think about that for a second so yeah check us out that's a really great way to support us for free and check out what we're doing thank you for the follows in advance so check this podcast out episode 92 with dennis hill multiple black belt holder and kramaga instructor kramaga is not just a self-defense system it is a way of life warriors den is a podcast for kravists Fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi. Your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day.
brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. Welcome back. I'm here with Dennis Hill. He operates a, a martial arts school out in uh, Connecticut and uh, primarily teaching Krav Maga and Jiu Jitsu, but uh, you teach all sorts of stuff. Isn't that right, Dennis? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, John, I do. I've <laughs> been here 20 years, so yeah. quite a few things that we do. Lifelong martial artist, you always diversify. But before we get into that, let's just start with um, how did you get into martial arts in the first place? Oh, boy. So probably like a lot of people my age, um, I'm older, I'm, I'm 55. And uh, for me, I started when I was a youngster. So I was really into Bruce Lee. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably in my generation probably were influenced by Bruce Lee back in the day. And that may be how they got into martial arts as well. So for me, um, I was seven. And uh, that was something that uh, that I went to the my mom probably didn't know Bruce Lee what he did I don't think back then you could even see or find uh, JKD and it started with uh, with Taekwondo so that's that's how I got started first. Yeah, that reminds me like when I was young, my parent, I was like, I want to do martial arts and I'm, I'm not as old as you but my dad only knew karate and I just remember telling him. I don't want anything with katas. And he's like, oh, I don't know anything. And this is slightly before the internet, so he didn't really bother to look. So <laughs> my journey started later on. Well, for the longest time, like everything was karate, right? Yeah. Everything was, was well, just karate. So yeah. So that's how it started. Um, yeah. Started with Bruce Lee and uh, just um, went from there. Yeah. Now you said you started with Taekwondo back then. How was the Taekwondo program? Because I know nowadays it's not what they once were. Was it more like hardcore, like we would imagine in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s? I would, I mean, I have not been in a Taekwondo school, in, I, I mean, forever. But back yeah. then it was, oh, let me think back. I mean, I have recollections. Um, first of all, everyone looked like giants. Like when I yeah. think <laughs> I was a little kid. And I just remember that it seemed like it was a lot of um, a lot of sparring, a lot of heavy bag hitting. Um, I really don't remember. I don't really remember seeing too much um, focus on kata, but I could be wrong. I mean, my mm. memory could be fading. But I, one thing I do remember, which I think is very different these days, is it was all guys. I mean, yeah. I just remember men. I don't remember it, tough. Always remind me of just tough guys, mm. but nice guys. That was another thing that I found. Uh, my father passed away when I was young, so I was definitely a young kid looking for role models, you know, mm. male role models, and um, I did find that in martial arts. But it was a very small kids program. I remember Mr. Lee used to come and train with us and give us things to work on, and then I always remember him going and working with the adults. Um, I don't know nowadays if Taekwondo, I would say, I mean, I could be wrong, uh, Jonathan, but I think Taekwondo, I think most of the schools probably have a lot more kids. Than they yeah. yeah, up here it's like that. I don't know many adults that do Taekwondo. It's all kids mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and I would imagine for karate, it's similar, though there's a lot of adults, like there's a uh, strong Kyokushin community up where I am. 
um, because uh, Richmond is one of the cities here and it had one of the oldest Japanese communities outside of Japan. So they have strong Kendo, Judo and uh, uh, old school, you know, Okinawan, Kyokushin Karate. So those communities are pretty developed here. So they tend to have the adults, but the, uh, you know, the traditional or the more modern like uh, Olympic style points style stuff, which I despise, <laughs> that attracts all the kids. Um, probably for the reason that it's got a path to the Olympics and there's a sports component, even if most of us think it's not real fighting anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it was interesting because um, Mr. Lee then, uh, and I don't even know his first name. All I remember yeah. was Mr. Lee, but I do remember when he, uh, the, the message that I remember was that, oh, Mr. Lee is going back to Korea. Mm. And when he then went to Korea, the school ended up um, closing. So mm -hmm. I ended up um, I ended up taking some time off until we found another school. And I remember then getting into a Tongsudo, which was another um, which was another Korean martial art. And there, I remember as I was older, I remember that like lots of forms, lots of going down the mats with your kicks, your punches, and and you know all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've trained some students uh, f with from that style before. They came over to check Kramaga because you know it's one of those styles that's trying to modernize, and they're teaching self defense. And yeah, I think maybe they got offended with some of the stuff I was saying. <laughs> I'm like, eh, if you make it too too artsy, it's not self defense anymore, guys. <laughs> you know. But. Yeah. So you did switch Taekwondo, Tangtudo. What else? What's the next step for you? Um, then I start, like one of the things I noticed with the Korean arts, very good with kicking, mm. uh, for sure, right? Korean arts are usually known for kicking. Yeah. Um, my buddies and I then wanted to get a little bit more with hands. And I think back then Kempo was really the mm. thing that was known. So yeah. we started to get involved with Kempo. So that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. And um, that was the next thing that I started to kind of kind of train in. But it seemed pretty similar. Um, and I spent years doing that. It seemed pretty similar. But I did like the fact that it had more, more hands than us. Yeah. But um, I was trying to balance out. I guess like back in the day, I was always, always interested in self-defense and always trying to fill gaps, you know, where mm. I thought where I thought I needed it. And um, one thing was, was interesting. We had a Russian guy that used to train there and he was um, a boxer from Russia, but I mean, he just like, was unbelievable. I mean, the boxing was very different, you know? So yeah. you get another, you know, another taste of another type of, uh, back then I, I don't think most people would have called boxing martial arts, you know? Yeah. That's, Boxing's boxing, martial arts, more people looked at it as an Eastern type of thing. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, well, you know, I mean, if you if you got into it, because Bruce Lee, a lot of people, you know, know or don't know that he said if you, something along the lines, like if you get uh, a couple months of boxing, a couple months of wrestling, a couple months of, you know, something else, you'll probably be able to beat most people on the street. Just by the fact that you can start doing stuff the other person isn't familiar with and if they're familiar with one, you switch to the other and you can overwhelm people quite sure. quickly. So you obviously went down that route sort of mentality rather than the people who wanted to just copy exactly what he was doing because you, yeah. you got a lot of division between 
the two two sort of mentalities of people that followed Bruce. Yeah, I have to tell you something funny. You just made me have a um, uh, one of the gentlemen that used to train at our school. He um, he came. His name is Billy, and Billy was um, came from boxing and wrestling, and he was funny because he was. I wrestle the boxers and then I box the wrestlers. Yeah. So he was always then like, yeah, you know, having both, it would, it would, you know, I can pretty much use those skill sets against the other. So, yeah. so then uh, what was after that in your development? Then this gentleman, Alex, um, the boxer, um, his, his name, Alex, if you're ever listening to this, my friend, Alex Kuzmioff, he yeah. then, um, started getting into more, Aikido more. He wanted to see things that were a little bit different. And then I started training um, in that. And um, that also led me to judo, where I found, and that's where I would say I found like a true, a true passion. I, I always loved my martial arts. Um, they were all, they were all just fantastic parts of my development. I would say that it came when we were we were training in um, training in in uh, Aikido. My instructor also his instructor was a Korean instructor, so it was Hapkido. It was um, I would say more. He always marketed it as Aikido, but I think it was more of a blend. And then his son did judo, so that's where I got involved. And then. When I got into judo, I was like, wow, this, this is like, this is, this is tough stuff. Yeah. Oh, this is really like tough stuff. And yeah. then that was a really, I'd say powerful point in my training. I really, really loved training. And, uh, yeah. And you're, you're black belt, I imagine now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you stuck with it. You didn't get scared. <laughs> well, Tati, you know what's funny back then? I don't know when you, if you were cross training, but I remember back then, like cross training was like taboo. Mm. And I got into like a lot of like, you know, it, it left a bad taste in my instructor's mouth when I was cross training and stuff. Yeah. Um, so much that I had to end up uh, leaving the school. And, yeah. um, that's just kind of the way it was. Nowadays, I just don't really see. I mean, there's still some things. It depends. Like you know, you have to, you have to definitely, um, you know, see the situation when it comes to cross training. But back then, I don't know if you remember. It's like you just stuck with the system, and you didn't. You just didn't do that. Yeah, no, I'm a little young for that. Although you know, I've experienced a little bit of that. But I'm, I like, I encourage my students train everywhere you can. I mean, don't. I, t I mean, I tell my students, don't necessarily train everything because if you put too much time into something that the muscle memories conflict with what you're already doing, it might might be a bad idea. But other than that, I'm like, you know, cross-train. But I know pre-internet, it was really common for that to happen, the ego, because what if you just dedicated your whole life to one style and your student found out it's not so great anymore because someone else figured something else out. <clears throat> and and, and well, I don't think that's specific to the martial arts world. That was just the human world. Right. Everyone didn't want to be proven wrong in their little bubbles. So they would, you know, keep people under their thumbs. <laughs> yep. Very, yeah. very true. Um, yeah. Very, very true. So, yeah, that's where I would say that was, um, that was uh, definitely a passion and a love that I found. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've dabbled in judo. I teach a little bit of judo, 
it's, it is so hard hitting and you got to commit commit a lot of energy to doing judo it's uh, but one of my instructors is a judo black belt as well so i often get them to to manage the the nuances of the footwork if they want to do the judo way well it's funny our coach used to say um used to say that uh, people say oh judo the you know the gentle way or yeah <laughs> you say anyone who thinks judo is gentle is going to get smashed <laughs> yeah out of <laughs> like, their minds yeah <laughs> So but from judo, it's pretty much dead here. In yeah, it's, it's it's pretty much Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is just taking over. Yeah, the impacts of judo is quite intimidating. It's uh, there are judo, there are very competitive judo feeder programs where I am, uh, and there is the the Vancouver police. They use judo uh, as their primary system. They have a they have a feeder program as well. Um, but you're right, the jujitsu is a lot more appealing to the average person or the smaller person. Uh, so I guess that then that you, you obviously, if you're teaching jujitsu, you got into jujitsu at some point then. I did. And you know, what's interesting back in the judo days, I remember when we would get people that they like, you know, in, in judo, the groundwork is called Nawaza. They, mm. they, they like the Nawaza. Um, when you're new, it's, it doesn't beat up your body too much. You know, the throws kind of throws, throws are hard to do. And it, it takes a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a beating on, uh, on your body wear and tear. But I remember back in the day, we were like, well, sometimes with new people, why not just let's teach them Nawaza and let's not really, let's not really maybe put the throws in right away. But our coach was like, that's, that's just not how it's taught. You know, that's mm. just not the way it's taught. You know, the throws. Well, actually, let me mention this, Jonathan. I felt when I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I felt very blessed because our coach, he, his name is uh, Sid Kelly. So anyways, just to mention, like, when that whole relationship of cross-training, I basically then just stayed with, uh, with my judo coach, which I met. There's a whole story behind that. And uh, me and my friends, we uh, we stayed with Sid, and we were training uh, judo. We just loved it. But mm. he from um, he came from Great Britain, and he always taught. His classes were always more standing ground, randori, um, and then if you're preparing for tournament shi. But it was it was always like it was always both. Mm. Um, I clearly started to remember then as I got more involved with the judo community, a lot of judokas, um, you know, they mostly focused on the stand-up and their groundwork was very limited, but I, I felt blessed because then when we were doing jujitsu, you're like, well, a lot of this is stuff that we do in judo as well. Not all of it. The guard work is very much more intricate, but um, there's a lot, you know, obviously the BJJ came from judo, so yeah. You're looking at chokes and arm bars and things like that. So, anyways, uh, that was a, that was a blessing. Yeah. So, uh, what rank in jujitsu are you now? Like, what what year did you start that in uh, judo and jujitsu? Just to give some context. Well, judo, judo was judo was first. Judo, uh, I mean, just to give you a background with the grappling. Um, judo, judo was first. We then, or then I got um, into Sambo, Russian Sambo, Russian wrestling. Mm. But what, what years, just so I know, oh, if God. you remember. <laughs> but um, I started to get into, into Sambo. I've, I've had my school now for 20 years. Mm. So 
celebrated 20 years. When I opened my school, I'll share a funny story with you. When I opened my school, my wife was working as an underwriter, it's her background, very much a numbers person. And she had some pictures on her desk and of me just doing, you know, just martial art pictures. And one of, oh boy, let me think of her. I can't think of her name right now, but one of her employees was looking at it and said, oh, that's interesting. You're, is your husband, is that your husband? And she's like, yeah. And he's really like fanatical about martial arts. She's like, oh, I wonder if he'd want to meet my, um, my dad. He's here from Russia now. And he's, um, he's a wrestling coach from Russia. And my wife was like, oh yeah, he'll definitely want to talk to him. <laughs> so she ended up getting his information. And I remember, um, contacting him. His name is uh, Joseph Vigdorchik, great guy. And Joseph, I called him and we were at a date at a Dunkin' Donuts. And I remember saying to Joseph, I was like, Joseph, just so like, what do you, you know, what do you look like? Just so I know, you know, when I walk in, he goes, I mean, I'm going to do a bad impersonation <laughs> um, impression of a Russian accent. He goes, I will be the one that looks like a wrestler. <laughs> and it was, uh, it started um, an eight-year relationship where Joseph then came and, and taught for us for, for eight years. And I started learning, um, just getting exposed to things that were, um, that were Russian. And actually, that's where my first, the first time I even got into kettlebells. And, mm. and that's another thing that we do at our gym, which is I just love kettlebell training. Yeah. So, but anyways, that then, um, as far as like then how that bridge to jujitsu. So I started getting it, I guess it was like you start hearing more and more about Brazilian jujitsu where it was, it was something that, um, of course I was interested in to see what's the difference. Like, how does this compare to what I already know. And I would say that I probably wouldn't have pursued it as much if it wasn't for the climate that was changing with customers. Mm. Um, what I mean by that is we were, um, you know, running a business, you are certainly looking to evolve and change and adapt to what consumer taste and preferences start to change and what they ask for, what they're looking for. And I very clearly remember when um, people would call and they just wanted to know if we did Brazilian jujitsu. And if I was talking to them, well, we do judo, you know, we do, and they're okay, thank you. And they would, they pretty much didn't even want to talk to you. They just were looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They didn't want to hear about judo. They didn't want to hear about any other grappling style, sambo or wrestling, or it was Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I was like, hmm, maybe I need to look into this a little bit more. So I started then just bringing in people for seminars. Mm. And then I was like, well, let's take this a step further and let's then put on a white belt. Let's look for an instructor. 
and let's see um, you know how this could be implemented into into our school. Um, so back then, and we're we're looking at so. I am, um, as a matter of fact, the other day, it was funny because I was looking to see, I just celebrated when I got my black belt. So that was, that was back in 2013. Uh, yeah, then 2016, I got my first, my first degree. So, um, so this goes back even further. So looking then there i mean there was nobody really teaching jujitsu now it's yeah. so i mean now you everywhere <laughs> everywhere yeah but um i started just going and meeting instructors and trying to see who will be a fit for us i mean we have a certain culture we have a certain way about ourselves and i just wanted to make sure that the instructor that i was linking with would be a good fit Mm. So then I met Luigi Mondelli. Luigi Mondelli is an amazing guy. He is from Rio. He ended up relocating in Connecticut. And I set up a time to meet with him. And that would have been, I would say, other than seminars, that would have been my first real, my first Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. Mm. And we just hit it off. He's a great guy. And it was like, okay. I brought him in to teach on Saturdays and then I would go to his school and I would go, I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. I went to, if I remember correctly, and then he would teach. So then he brought me from uh, my white belt um, to, you know, brought me through my blue, purple, brown, black. So yeah. he's still my instructor today. I mean, yeah. he, uh, he runs the Federation and um yeah so that's kind of how that started but jonathan I, I i'm not sure i guess eventually i would have done it because i mean look at the popularity of brazilian jiu-jitsu now it's global i'm yeah. sure there would have been a point that i would have wanted to get into it but i don't think i would have gotten into it when i did if, if it wasn't also it wasn't also like a business decision because that's yeah. what i saw people were asking for and Therefore, from a business perspective, I, I got to look into this and see what we can do. Yeah. So that's how that took place. Yeah, I know for sure. It's uh, like my I, I started with Kramaga primarily and uh, realized there's a gap in the knowledge base from most Kramaga guys, which is the, the grappling aspect. And, you know, started my after I bumped into a black belt in, uh, in a bar at the UFC. He's like, hey, school's around the corner. I started there. I'm now somewhere else. But, uh, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm at the tail end of my purple belt now, like eight years later. Oh, awesome. But um, it's, it's when you cross train, it's, it just changes your perspective. Like me doing jujitsu and dabbling in other stuff, I've tweaked my Kramaga program uh, yeah, just from cross training, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found like too with Kali. I mean, I, I love Filipino martial arts. And when it comes to um, impact weapons and blades, I mean, there's no doubt that the Filipino martial arts has affected my uh, weapon work. I, I mean, how can it not? Yeah. Like how does jujitsu, when you start learning it, how does it not cross over and cross pollinate into your Krav Maga? Yeah. Now, with that being said, when did the Krav Maga enter the picture? Kramaga, it's uh, it started pretty early when I opened the school. Um, 
because what I did, um, I, I had, I had, um, I opened up my school when I first started and had other instructors that I was friends with come in and train so that we would train together. And I had people from different styles that would come in. And one of the guys that came in was uh, Krav Maga. Mm. So that's how I first started to get into, into Krav Maga training. And at first I wasn't really that much into it. Um, you know, I, I really just, I, it was good to cross train, but I guess um, at that point I was, I was just into what I was doing, but I did like seeing different things that it was, it was, it was a, it was, it was good. You know, I think we all, the people that were part of that, we all benefited uh, from, from each other. So that was good. Yeah. Now, which, which organization did you sort of get involved with? Cause I know that's a different, different thing for different people with the, with this organization, that organization. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that did that, that happened for me too. And, um, I don't want to say names and stuff yeah. like that because it took a while and I, I belong to a few organizations and um, I just had to feel like what was a good fit. And part of it was, I don't know what your background was with Kramagan, how, you know, um, I think you're independent if I'm not mistaken. I am independent now, though I am technically loosely affiliated with a couple organizations. Yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, no, I understand that. I found that it was also like, I wanted to just have someone even that was close to me. Mm. And um, in the beginning, it was hard because you had to fly people in and it was a ton of money. And I also found in the beginning um, that the curriculum, some of it seemed a little like, how, how is this even structured? It seemed a little bit like it's just kind of put together, but I don't see themes at all. Mm. And I found that a little frustrating. Mm. I remember sometimes they were trying to change things and they would be like, well, we're going to do a straight arm bar and, and yellow belt. And you're like a straight arm bar. It just seems like that's, that, that's a lot for somebody. But I think what they were probably doing is maybe getting caught up in the MMA, yeah. um, you know, the MMA thing. And they yeah. were just trying to, you know, adapt. So I enjoyed Everybody that I train with, I enjoyed all of it. And right now, I just have a loose affiliation. I do love um, Alan Cohen and his system. Mm. And when I found that, I was like, wow, he's got a very, very theme-based system. For instance, your yellow belt, your orange belt, it's all self-defense skills. Mm. Um, green belt is your grappling. Your blue belt is your weapons you know, predominantly like blades and then it goes to firearms and it's like I've never seen prior to that how it was put it was put together and that is where um where I am now yeah yeah it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of us come to that the Israelis as great as they are they they don't like managing things they really don't you know, that when you see how the global ones are structured, it's like, ah, I'll teach you the, here's an instructor program, go, 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 go. And I'm like, can't run a school off of that. And, you know, that's a big reason why I think there's a quality control issue, particularly in North America. You know, I, like my program, it took me quite a while to come t 
sort of what techniques I want where because I don't want a bloated one with too many techniques because that defeats the simplicity yeah. thing. But I also need to cover all the bases. So like for me, like my I came to white belt is your basics, uh, you know, 360 knife defense, straight line, uh, how to move, how to think, punch, kick and some basic chokes. And I really focus on conceptual ideas. And then if you can get your yellow belt, yellow and orange, I'm focusing on the throws, the controls, like the judo, jujitsu aspects, um, groundwork, more advancing of the basic concepts. And then green belt up, I start introducing the, the uh, offensive weapons because I don't think it's uh, necessarily self-defense at that point in a lot of times. It's more job-oriented, so policing, military application. Um, I, I, you know, I originally, organization I originally started with had like something like 1500 techniques. I'm like, that's not, that's too much. <clears throat> I think I'm down to like 300 or so. And I just repeat, repeat, repeat. And if you want to learn other stuff, go cross train. Uh, and I think, that, you know, that's an interesting thing, Jonathan, because that's <clears throat> what you do too is, um, I, I, I don't know, like my feeling is that Kramaga is supposed to be, is supposed to be, um, system of self-defense where if it gets too complex yeah I, i'm not sure if that's gonna serve people that are coming in for self-defense yeah I, I struggle with this even with my staff sometimes because i find that most people um if they're coming into krav maga and you're like you know why is someone coming into krav maga is that they want to wear self-defense i mean that's mm. that's basically what they want to do and um, I think they come in with preconceived ideas. Right? <laughs> Boy, do they. Right? Yeah, right? <laughs> they do. So it's got to be something that's pretty simple for them to learn. And the hard part, too, with Krav Maga is um, you, I, I think most people think of it as a short-term study. Mm. I think in the beginning, most people view it that way. How long but, till I'm an instructor, right? <laughs> yeah, but then there's, there's like the belt system that they're going through. Yeah. And then I start to find as a as they progress through their Krav Maga, and let's say that they're like, wow, I really like the striking, you know, I, I enjoy this. Then I start to find they'll cross-train in Muay Thai, you know, mm. so they'll cross-train in our Muay Thai program. Or if we're, let's say we're doing a rotation on edged weapons, and they kind of like that. They'll start cross-training in Kali. Or if they like the grappling, um, all of a sudden, bam, next thing you know, they're in a jujitsu class. So I find that I like to give our students their, I look at Krav Maga as like, it's, it's, it's the first place that people often come in our school. Um, they're always a little nervous, right? They're, they're kind of nervous to come in. And it's a great system for somebody to come into and for somebody to grow in if they want something that's broad, but mm -hmm. maybe not too deep, but it's broad. I mean, there's yeah. a lot you got to learn. And, and, you know, I mean, you got to learn your punching, your blocking, your, your blades, your sticks, your, your firearms, all of that, your grappling. But it doesn't run too deep in any of those things. And that's why I like having the other martial arts so that if you find that you're connected to this type of training, keep coming to Krav Maga. But if you like, you know, let's say grappling, because that's that's a big one. If you enjoy the grappling, then, hey, cross training jujitsu. And right now I see a lot of a lot of friends in Krav Maga. That's a big one that they're cross training in is jujitsu. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now it's so you came from a very rich, deep martial arts background uh, before you came into Krav Maga, and it's actually interesting because a lot of people with that kind of background, because like you just said, that Krav Maga is very broad but yeah. not necessarily deep, and yeah. it's very I don't easy. Want to offend anybody. I don't want yeah. to say but i would say i mean you're, you're right it's it, it's a lower level of skill development uh when compared to a boxer or a wrestler yep so that's what i was getting to it's very easy for someone with your background to dis be dismissive of kramaga and i see mma guys dismissive of it and i see you know jujitsu guys dismissive of it and it's like i don't think you understand like what it is because i can go in the news and find black belts of all sorts of styles who were phenomenal MMA guys who got killed in the street because they really didn't understand self-defense. So why did you not dismiss it, given your background uh, from that? You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, let me, before I, I give you um, some um, details on that, let me mm. just share something. I had a, a longtime martial art friend stop in. <laughs> The other day, I haven't seen him in a while, and his name is David. And he came in, and I was like, "David, oh my God, I haven't seen you in so long." And he, he's like, "You know, how's it going with the school and all of this?" And then the last thing he said, he goes, "Why Krav Maga? Why did you?" And you know, because he's like, "Why? Why did you even go to Krav Maga?" Mm -hmm. So see, like a lot of a lot of um, my friends, like sometimes they're like, "Why did you do that?" Um, I. I started to, to look into Kramaga. Like I said, in the beginning, I wasn't interested in it. It just, it just like, I'm like, it's just not something that I'm really interested in doing. I'm not sure if it's going to add value to what I already do. Um, but the more that I started to look into it, I was, um, I was like, this is going to be a system that is going to give a person who wants to come in for self-defense, it's going to give them a very good structure for that. And I think that the, the Israeli system is going to be able to give people what they want for self-defense. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, I'll tell you another story. One of, one of my BJJ uh, guys, and um, he comes in cross trains with us. He loves judo. He does Krav Maga, he does Kali, and uh, he, he's, I was talking to him the other day, his name is Tommy, or last week or two weeks ago, I was chatting with him, and he said, you know what, Dennis, he goes, I have to tell, tell you something funny, he goes, I got involved with jujitsu because I just wanted to do self-defense, I wanted to learn, I, 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 I wanted to learn self-defense skills, that's why I started looking at, it. and he goes, I hear jujitsu, 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 I guess then I should go to jujitsu. And he goes, do you know the first lesson, the first thing that they were teaching in class was Delahiva guard. <laughs> and I was going out of there going, how is Delahiva going to help me in a street encounter? And see, he was like, he was like, I don't think this is going to be something that maybe I should do. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. But the rolling and all that is a lot of fun. So he ended up sticking with it. But then he, he started coming um, when he found out about our school at Krav Maga, he started to come to our school to train 
And he also then is starting to do the jujitsu and the judo at our school as well. So, but that's a funny thing. So why did I start getting into Krav Maga again? Because I think it's got, my martial art friends will ask me a lot, like why? Because it has all the systems that I've been exposed to. I've not seen one that has a better one that is for the person coming in that wants to learn self-defense. Now, I came at a long history with Hapkido as well. If you ever took a Hapkido class, it covers a lot of stuff that you'll see in Krav Maga plus more. However, the way it's structured to teach it, it should look towards Krav Maga and how to break it down for that person that wants self-defense. The way that they address things up front that a new student would do, I would say, I think Krav Maga has got the upper hand here. Um, let's let's talk about this too. There's a big thing in jujitsu as far as jujitsu being like something you learn for self-defense. Mm. I don't know, Jonathan, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, oh, I can I say a lot about that. Say, mm, I don't know. Well, like, the, the example for the... <laughs> my uh it's so being a martial arts expert no matter what the style even if you yourself are quite capable of handling yourself in a self-defense situation that doesn't mean you're qualified to teach for self-defense just because you're some world champion and the and and, and a, a big a point. yeah at a big difference for me is this is all martial arts we all know that if 10,000 people walk in the door, one's going to be the black belt skill level. And that black belt is going to be the one who can be like, yeah, sure, I can handle most things. Yet, I can, as I said, I can still find stories of black belts getting killed because they didn't understand how a firearm works or something like that. Or stabbed. Right? Um, and so they're approaching it from the wrong thing is you can't just teach a technique because you think it's good. The example I give, if we go into a women's self-defense BJJ seminar. Half these people have never done jujitsu at all or grappling. And we're saying, in theory, it's a good idea that I teach them a triangle from the guard. Why? Because they are being attacked. They're probably being raped. They are going to be able to do this technique. And then I say, oh, hold on a second. Listen, I'm a purple belt. And against anyone even remotely bigger than me. I have a bad knee. I can barely do triangles. I know how to do them technically. So this is a technique you're teaching that in order to be proficient at it, you need years and years of training. How is that helpful in self-defense? You, all oh, you're just doing it wrong. No, I'm not. You are not being objectively practical. I cannot use techniques that take decades to master and use them in a self-defense system. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, well, now, yeah, if someone asked me in, in my class, hey, could you show me a triangle? I'll quickly show them. And I said, now go do jujitsu. It's yep. not a, technically it's a great technique, but it, and a high percentage in competition. But that 100 pound woman who's about to get raped is not, is not doing a fucking triangle on, on anyone because the, the pressure. Pounds, and that guy's 250. Okay, yeah. And possibly just slam her. You yeah. Know, I, it's, yeah. It's very common for people just to pick up and slam. And, you know, I've had this conversation with many grapplers and I'm like, listen, you're not teaching self-defense. Can you please stop? Of course, they think I'm nuts. It's like, where's your five black belts and this and that? I'm like, you're going to get someone killed, man. Like, it's just not right. I mean, self-defense goes so deep. Yesterday I was listening to, um, did you ever hear of Andrew Branca? Uh, nope. He's an attorney 
he's probably in the U.S. He's probably the self-defense attorney. And he talks a lot. I, I love the guy. Mm. Books, um, he does seminars and things like that. But he talks about just the law of self-defense. And mm. uh, that was the name of his book, The Law of Self-Defense. And um, anyways, I always like to do that. We have a gentleman, too, at our school. He's a prosecutor. And he did a workshop for us on the law of self-defense. And there's a lot that I think people don't understand, even if you're a martial artist or like I, I know you do you know, gun training and firearms training, me mm -hmm. too, that people really need to learn about self-defense. So that's one aspect, the law of self-defense. Um, and then what you're talking about is like even technical skills with self-defense. Uh, let me give you a call that I had not too long ago. And I was debating with my wife, like, what, what do I do with this? And uh, Jonathan, you'll like this. Hopefully your, um, your listeners will appreciate this because a lot of them, if they're school owners, get this type of call. Mm -hmm. Gentleman calls and he wants to learn self-defense. So he's, he's, he's asking about jujitsu. And so get a little bit of information about him. And I was like, oh boy, I was like, all right, here's a rotation we're working on in jujitsu. Now we have fundamental classes. We have classes where you mostly roll competition class, but you know, we'd bring them into a class where um, we're, we're working on spider guard and lassos. Mm. And I'm like, how is this guy, if I bring him in and he wants to learn self-defense, is this guy gonna think that this is self-defense training? And I was saying to my wife, I was talking to my instructors, I'm like, I got to get this guy to come into Kamaga. But sometimes it's hard because people say, well, I want to do jujitsu. That's what they want to do. If you ask them to do something else, it becomes challenging. So that is something where I would rather have that potential student come through Krav Maga. Mm -hmm. And then if he starts enjoying grappling and stuff, I can talk to him a little bit more, you know, why the BJJ would be helpful in, in some situations, you know, talk to him more and just start to lay out how we do things at the school and what programs would most likely benefit you best based on your goals. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think about that? If he came into a class and was doing um, spider guard, yeah, well, I think they'd be overwhelmed a lot of the time. Yeah, but do you think you're going to have self-defense training? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and don't get me wrong, there's lots, like, for example, uh, an open half guard like Zed guard, I teach in self-defense because that's much more practical in, you know, a raging, like, they're trying to get on top of you situation where you can manage it. And so knowing, like, which aspects of jujitsu, like my, and I said my Kramaga is so much better for doing jujitsu and judo and wrestling. Oh, for sure. Um, but you just, I find people, they don't know how to take the techniques and correctly insert them into it and what not to teach. Cause it's like, listen, that's too technical or that's just not going to work. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the hardest things I think Kramaga instructors, whenever they learn something new, it's like, oh, I'm going to teach this. And, you know, I'll learn something new. Like I was thinking about, should I put heel hooks in my program? Cause they're very effective. And I just, I had to think, I haven't put it in yet, and I think I'm going to put it in at the higher levels. Um, what scenarios that are self-defense oriented where this would be appropriate? And I had to think about it. And the thing I came up with, sometimes we end up in a situation where we're on the ground, on our back, and someone tries to stomp. They, they don't really understand. They try to step over your hips and stomp on your head, and they expose that single leg. I'm like, there, single leg sweep, 
feel hooked, right? But it's a very specific situation and it wouldn't just be a general, here's a heel hook, you need to do them all the time because that doesn't make any sense. Yep. You know? Here's an interesting thing that happened in Connecticut. It happened years ago, but it sticks in your mind because it really was a big thing when it happened. On the highway, there's a car um, or there's a vehicle that was pulled over and uh, the gentleman then was resisting and he ended up just attacking uh, this guy's, uh, the state trooper's legs. He ended up um, damaging and um, uh, causing major damage to the leg. So other departments were responding and this guy was, I, I, he was military. I don't remember, I, I believe he was military. Somehow I think this guy was studying Sambo and he started just like, just attacking all these officers' legs and causing major damage to them. And one of the, one of the officers was um, a gentleman that I didn't know personally, but it was a friend of a friend. So my friend was telling me the story. He was a karate black belt. And he goes, this guy grabbed my leg. I had no idea what he was doing. Next thing I know, I just had searing pain in my knee. And it was just, you know, right there. That sometimes is even good for maybe not offensive, but at least defensive skills. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of a specialty, if you will. I mean, leg locking and stuff like that is probably not what most people think of as far as learning it for self-defense. But in yeah. that case, Boy, that would have certainly helped if people knew how to defend defend that a little bit better. Yeah. Well, like knowing. So that's like when the, I actually was just listening to Hicks and Gracie on Joe Rogan. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, he, I, I, oh, wait, not on. Was it Joe Rogan or Jocko? I think I heard him on Jocko. I think podcast. it was on both. Okay. Uh, uh, I briefly listened to the Jocko one, too. But it's just he's telling the story of how like Helio came up with what he did. And it's like like the and, and just changing things and if no one's ever seen anything they don't know how to deal with it and so you know that that to me the crown my god the generalist aspect is why it's so important because you have no idea what someone's going to come at you with and right. we don't need to be specialists if you want right. to be a specialist you go train that thing but people will mock you like you're not developing the good skill sets you're not going to be as good a boxer it's like of course not because i need to be ready for anything i need to know how to defend against anything and I don't need to beat him in a fight. I need to stop him for five, 10 seconds so that I can escape. Uh, and I think that's, that's a big component, you know, of an MMA. Because I get young, fit guys come in once in a while. They're just so gifted. They're bored with Krav Maga in a very short amount of time because I get a wide variety of people, small women and girls, big guys. And the athletic guys, they rarely stay because what they're really looking for is that athletic output. To, to tire themselves out and they're not necessarily getting when say if they have good kickboxing skills and during sparring and they're just messing everyone up and I'm like hey just chill work on your defense yeah. and they're like uh like I don't want I want to push myself I'm like I, I don't you should you need something with competition you still do Krav Maga but you need something with competition now I'm just teaching Krav Maga right now so I can't feed them into any other programs but it's it's really hard with some of these guys to make or make people realize why it's important yeah. Um, you know, you'll get old eventually, dude. You don't have your athletic skill anymore. What are you going to do? <laughs> I feel that now. I, I, yeah. I have that. You know, it's funny because a couple of things. Um, one was um, when you said that you're getting old. Like, I remember Hickson in that podcast making a comment that right now he's about 5% of what he used to be. Yeah. 
And I'm sure he's more than 5% what he used to be. But I mean, you know, back in the day, I mean, he was the man. And um, now I'm sure he feels his age and stuff like we all do. I mean, I feel it at 55 now. Um, The other thing is, it's very interesting how CrossFit was, is a, at least I know just from from my my gym, Mm. I get so many people that did CrossFit coming into Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. They don't come to Krav Maga because I think you had mentioned for the same reasons you had mentioned, they, they generally will come into BJJ because it's, 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 uh, it's more, uh, it's, it's, they like the push in jujitsu when they're rolling and they like the competition. Mm. So we get a lot, I, we get a lot of crossfitters. Just have a new guy um, that just joined Jason and that's his background, CrossFit. And he's like, I'm getting bored with CrossFit. It's just <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. CrossFit is um CrossFitters seem to really take to jujitsu. I mean, they're already in shape, which is great. You know, they're already in shape. They got to learn the the technical skills. Yeah. Um, but I have to share something else with you. And you were saying that. Um prior to COVID, like COVID was just horrible. It shut everything for horrible for everybody and you're in a very aggressive shutdown state right yep we are (laughs) and um we we always would like to go to a boxing gym so there's a there's a boxing gym a blue boy boxing so um we generally will go once a month there and there's no doubt we go there to box and we go there to learn boxing but like you were saying if you're gonna box a boxer good luck yeah you know, good luck. <laughs> oh, they're going to mess you up I if you play the game. boxer. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason Mayweather never took a fight outside of boxing. He's right. like, nope. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Jonathan. Mm, sure. Yeah. Think about Hickson. Um, I'm not going to be able to say it verbatim, but I found it interesting how the split with jujitsu, where you see a lot of. Comp- you know, more people going towards the competitive side and more people maybe doing the self-defense. And he said in there um, that his jujitsu, or what he saw as the Gracie, when, they, when the Gracie started it, is that it was where you certainly had self-defense skills. Because, you know, you'll see some of their older videos, they do blade work and stuff like that. Mm. They're self-defense skills and being a fighter like you did the live practice you did that and he said nowadays what i see more is you might have um people that are very good uh fighters in jujitsu but they lack self-defense skills and or you might see systems that are very good at self-defense but they lack fighting skills Mm. when he said that i was like I think that sometimes like it, you could see that division and that trend happening. And I do see that with like Kramaga, that sometimes where Kramaga gets like, you know, um, people will, will comment about that, about, you know, Kramaga. Like if you're not really doing live practice, you know, um, that that's kind of a little bit of a flaw with Kramaga. But I think most people don't realize that that is part of Krav Maga or is part of the Israeli system, but most people sometimes don't get there because you generally find that a lot of people that are attracted to Krav Maga 
really get scared when you're starting to do any sort of like live uh, practice. Mm. So I thought that was an in- interesting with uh, his comment. He's not wrong. Um, but I, you know, I all respect the Hicks and I find the Gracies are, are quite narrow minded sometimes about a lot of things. Um, but on that thing, he is pretty correct. And it's really all to do with how you train. So, you know, like I've never taken like a Gracie's combative thing per se, but I've seen what they do. And I, as a Krav guy, I don't like it. I find they're too technical. And again, the t- things they're teaching are not quick to learn. They're not, they're just, they require, and they'll be like, oh, look, it works. It's like, dude, you're Hicks and Gracie. Of course it's going to work, you know. Um, they're thinking inside their heads too much about themselves and what they can do and not enough about what other people can do. Um, and they don't train the mental enough. I know Hickson trains mental a lot more than the other ones, but as a general rule, the Gracie combatants don't teach people to overcome fear, which is a huge component of the way Krav is taught in Israel. Now, if you go with the soldiers, the special force, because there's only a couple units in the IDF that have the mental, physical, and technical fighting skills. It's a myth that the IDF says special soldiers have very high-level technical fighting skills, because they don't. Uh, Because I've seen it myself where they go up against a pro fighter and get taken apart. They just lack the skills. But uh, when you put people in combat zones, it's life or death. Does the fighter have the skills for that? And unfortunately, like I like to think I've fixed this issue with my curriculum. You know, it's hard to say, but... um, you have to develop a way where I'm developing that overcoming fear. You have to put them in sparring, whether they like it or not. Controlled, of course. Yeah. You have to put them in stress testing. That's the true to Krav Maga. But you need, if you have a civilian school, you're, you're not teaching to elite guys who are physically fit. You need to develop their technical skill. And so what a lot of people do is they go take their four-day Krav Maga course from a more military-oriented guy and then they open up a civilian school and they have no clue how to develop the technical. Mm. Or they come from a martial arts background and they take the four-day course, which I'm very against this in Karamaga. They need to stop with these short courses for instructorship. It doesn't, as you know, you put, put back on your white belt. It doesn't, you want to go with this organization, put back on your white belt, train with them for a few years, understand their system, then think about instructorship. Um, you know, I've had people come to me like, I want to be an instructor. I'm like three to four years and I'm still not letting you open up a school under my name. You can teach for me, but you're not opening up a school. That part the Gracie's got right. They developed all their black belts, said, hey, you go to that city, you go to that city, you go to that city. And by the time, and then they got the school sort of established. Then they started making it popular. So yeah. there were already established student bases at those schools. Mm-hmm. That part they did brilliantly, and it's the part that the Krav Maga world failed. They just sent everyone out who's not qualified, and the Israelis very much don't want to not be in Israel. Um, and it's created some schools with traditional martial arts background. They're great at developing technique, but they suck at the mind, and they don't spar. I'm like, I'm sorry, you have to, right? You know, you have to. <laughs> it's it's interesting because you and I have spoken about this before, where I think Krav Maga is uh, losing ground to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in a lot of respects. And I mm. think right now, I know here where, where, where I am, mm. the push 
for police is to train jujitsu, but mm. it's got to be a jujitsu where, um, like, you're not going to have an officer coming in where you're like, okay, guys, we're going to learn how to pull guard. I mean, who's going to pull guard out on the street? It's got to be the a jujitsu where it's it also has a combative um, component to it, mm. and that's where I think that Krav Maga is much. Uh, better um, as far as developing that and but I do think jujitsu gives that fighting ability like I have great instructors at my school one of my instructors um, his name is Mike Wolf is a police officer he's on SWAT and he, he he says something which I think is very interesting he's like grappling is fighting it's like for police officers it's like you get into those entanglements and it's like the better you are at being able to control somebody and and um you know not strike them to be able to just you know get them down put them in cuffs right that's what needs to be done grappling is a huge asset and everything else then goes circles around the grappling so very, very um, open-minded gentleman. He loves many martial arts, but I would say for Mike, like jujitsu is a big thing that he just loves. And um, I can see that push with police officers more going with jujitsu than with Krav Maga. And I think the grappling, you know, why they're doing it. Yeah. As I, 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 if I had to get a hold of this guy, I, I need to grapple. I need to not hit him, not, you know, just, just be able to control him. And if I need him in cuffs to get him in cuffs. So I don't know. Do you see that differently? Um, like I love, um, I love both arts, but I've seen the trend where Krav Maga is not as popular as it once was. And I can see jujitsu just being, to me, jujitsu right now is the most popular art on the yeah, planet. For sure. Now. Yeah. Yeah, you're lucky because where I am, Krav Maga was never popular, so it's always an uphill battle. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and jujitsu is also very popular. Like right, no, wait, John, I'm, I gotta ask you, what martial arts are popular where you are? What, what, uh, jujitsu, uh, jujitsu, and MMA are the primary uh, primary ones. Um, and, and it's the city in particular. It's very left wing. It's very safe. Okay. Um, there, I, to my knowledge, at this point, I'm one of the more successful Kramaga schools that I'm still around like 10 years later. There were some schools that were around 10 or 15 years, but as rent increased uh, and more competition came, they fell apart. So it, it's, it, uh, yeah. I mean, luckily, I'm, I'm, well, I'm in Canada, so our, our socialist government handed out a lot of money. So that helped a lot of people, but they're still being silly idiots. But anyways... Um, so the policing question, like if I, if a police officer comes into my white belt program, they're going to, they're probably going to be like, this isn't what I'm looking for. Okay. When I get them in private, I'm like, listen, I'm going to, cause I teach the grappling a little higher up and most police don't have this time to get to that point. So yep. I will teach the grappling for policing mm -hmm. in private lessons right away. And, and so the reason that the grappling, so the learning curve for grappling is extensive. It's a, it's a long, long time. Yeah. They need to know it for the ability to arrest people. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, the more you can grapple, the easier it is for you to control an arrest. But you need to come in with it from, I think, a wrestler's mentality where you got to stay on top. You cannot go yeah, on the bottom. Wrestling and judo. I No, no doubt. Like the yeah. jiu-jitsu program has to be heavy on the stand-up for sure. Yeah. And then one of the visions that people have of Krav Maga is that it's heavy on hitting people. Now, from an right. optics perspective, for policing, that's like, nope, that we're not doing that. But I, so I'll tell you the story I had is I was uh, teaching Krav Maga, like I was renting space at a judo gym. And he oh. said, hey, just so you know, on this days, I have these RCMP, uh, the Canadian Federal Police, there's a guy teaching uh, jujitsu to his police, fellow police officers. And uh, he's a brown belt. I, unfortunately, they'd never let me jump in and roll with them, which says to me, that's like, I'm like, guys, you know who I am, you know, I understand police work and military applications. So I think I can, I was just standing there watching with this brown, he's an experienced police officer of, I don't know, 15, 20 years. What he's teaching, I'm like, man, that's not useful for policing. You're the police officer. And that's the problem is you get these guys who are like, I'm a cop, I know how to do it. And it's like, no, not everyone knows. Again, not everyone understands what to do. Now, an example of 360 defense Mm -hmm. I teach cops because they need to know it. Cops get in their head, I can draw my gun and shoot you. I'm like, okay, you want to go on YouTube and find all the videos of all the cops that couldn't draw their firearm because they got overwhelmed and all of a sudden you had to use hand-to-hand -hand combat and then they got stabbed because they couldn't stop that initial attack, create space. And so I was, I was doing a drill with someone recently and I, I always tell police officers, bring your duty belt. Hey, I got fake guns. I mean, if you want to bring your unloaded gun, that's a risk on you, but uh, fake guns usually. And I said, okay, <clears throat> well, I drilled the 360 with them. And then uh, I start upping how aggressive I am, how quick. And you start seeing real fast, they can't draw that pistol anymore. Now, what happens if I get into you and I start grabbing, you get a hold of my arm. Great, you're controlling my arm now. Can you shoot me yet? And they're like, how do I let go and shoot you? I'm like, you can't. You have to learn how to grapple me down to the ground. Whatever way you do it, because I know there are ways that are quite successful, but I don't like to teach them unless someone has the physical capabilities to control someone, because a lot of them will end up with someone's face smashing into the ground. For example, you know, if I have them sort of front arm, uh, they're facing me, you can simply push the shoulder down, face goes into the ground. Well, sure, I can teach that to cops, but you know what's going to happen a large percent of the time if they don't have the skill that... Uh, perp or whatever's face is going to be smashed up and they're going to be in trouble in court now especially with the thing so i think a lot of people teaching this stuff they don't understand the legal aspect they don't understand the lack of skill in the police officers they don't understand where the weapons come in if you don't know how to integrate the your tools and you're teaching grappling you're telling people a lot of wrong information um give you something which uh, popped into my head about that. Um, two things. One is, um, I mentioned Andrew Bronca when he was talking, he said, one of the things, it's a little bit of a side note, but it just like, I was like, wow, it's like um, people going for their gun. He said, you know, now as a self-defense attorney goes, the, the thing that baffles me is people who want to learn self-defense a lot of times they go well i'll just go and get my pistol permit mm. and my gun is my self-defense and he's like most encounters are not deadly force they're mm. non-deadly force and a lot of people then get in a situation that's 
a non-deadly force situation and they think they're frightened and they use their gun. Yeah. You're like, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. With yeah. I'm deadly. You go deadly problem. And the other thing is um, I had a very interesting conversation. Uh, we went on just um, uh, the family went on this, um, um, this place called um, a place called hope. They, they do rehab for predatory birds. It was fascinating, but they were, there's a lot of police officers that volunteer there. And I was talking to one of them and it was interesting. She was saying how uh, she knew what I did. We were chatting and she goes, you know, she goes, a lot of times uh, civilians think that police officers are like, they're like expert with firearms. They're, they're hand-to-hand experts. And we are chatting about the training changes that are, that are taking place. And um, she's like, you know, a lot of times there's that myth that they think police officers just have all these skills and they don't, most of them don't, unless they go out and seek the training and do more than what they're required to do. Yeah. So just, you know, very interesting, that comment with Andrew, I thought that was, that's true. I see a lot of people come into my pistol permit classes. They're there for self-defense, but it's like, this is deadly force. What about non-deadly force? Yeah. Well, I mean, for for police, excellent for that. Yeah, I think for police, the mindset has to shift to and it's like this in a lot of countries, but I think it needs to be in America in particular. I think a big part of the problem in America is their engagement protocols are just creating a lot of these situations that other countries will say, hey, if we just slightly change our engagement protocols, it goes nonviolent a lot easier. Um, But you should only be drawing that thing if you're going to use it as in they have a gun or a knife and they're charging you. If that's not the case, you shouldn't be drawing it. You should have the hand-to-hand combat skills. Now, they're lacking the skills. That's very clear to everyone who's paying attention and actually understands. So they need the skills. Because they don't have the skills, that's why they're drawing so much in America. In Canada, uh, not to say that they, they don't really have the skills that much either, the mentality is really don't draw that thing unless you absolutely have to. There's yeah. still a lot of accusations of police shooting people on. And I'm like, no, they charge them with a knife, grow up, like stuff like that. But uh, and as a civilian, so in Canada, you cannot. There are exceptions to the rule. Like if I go into common law case cases, people have used guns in self-defense, but I can't go purchase a firearm for the purpose of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um I don't agree with that personally, but that's what it is in Canada. That's the laws here. I teach the course. I'm very well aware of the laws here. Now, in the States, what people have to realize where you're allowed to use it for self-defense is that it's a visual deterrent most of the time. Hey, pick the wrong person. Most predators are going to back out. You don't even need to draw it. Just let them know, listen, I'm armed. I'm the wrong target. That is where majority of confrontations will stop. Because they realize, oh, this is not a good target, right? Again, same concept, though. If you're going to draw it, are you willing to use it? And a lot of people who buy it for self-defense actually are not. Now, if you, if you drill quick draws and you drill that enough, you might have the muscle memory to draw and shoot and kill the person. But then mentally, you're like, shit, I just killed a person. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand its tool and how to use it correctly, right? And just even commenting too, like um, 
when you look at the pillars of self-defense, it's interesting when you look at that in most, like in the state, state laws that there's five pillars that Andrew was going over. He's like, if a prosecutor can make and can just like collapse one of those, your whole claim for self-defense is gone. And yeah. it's, um, I, 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 you know, I encourage my people to learn as much as they can about it. And actually, you know, it's one of the things that for me, um, I need to get into one of his seminars and uh, and just learn even more about that as a, as an instructor. But yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic, even just deadly versus non-deadly. Yeah. I mean, I think the way society is going is avoid lethal force at all costs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that you need high enough skill level, especially if it's your job, in order to reduce the chance of you be succumbing to fear and panicking and going yep. lethal right away, which is, is what happens uh, most of the time. You know, outside of military is different because if you're in a conflict zone, it's assumed that they're going to shoot at shoot to kill. So even though the Geneva idiots who made the Geneva Convention are like, oh, shoot to maim. It's like, yeah, OK, yeah, real. They're shooting at me. No, I'm shooting to kill. Grow up. Um, and there is a psychology behind it, like the the have you ever read the book on killing? I forgot yeah. who wrote it. Yeah. So he discusses in the older wars, you know, most people weren't shooting to kill. Mm -hmm. That's not true anymore. Because we've learned how to train people in a way to shoot to kill, to overcome that. Um, because what's the point of a soldier, like the Kramaga mentality? They're an th immediate threat to life and death now. I need to stop them now. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're like not willing to kill, mm -hmm. you're not a very effective soldier. Now, you shouldn't be going around killing people intentionally unless they're trying to, unless they've shown that they're going to cause you harm. But... That's the thing about like, as a civilian, you, a lot of people don't know if they can or they don't know if they have it in them. And then for, the other question is, why are you in situations where that's even on the table most of the time? Something's gone wrong. Now, from a self-defense perspective, often the Kramaga world loves scenarios, loves scenarios. And I think people don't set them up correctly because my question a lot of time to students is, okay, I'm going to show you how to deal with this, but why are you even in this position? What went wrong to get you to this position? And I don't think a lot of enough instructors address that. The person is behind you and attacking you aggressively. Why are they doing that? That's not a normal situation. Who's, what enemies did you make? Did you hit on someone's girlfriend in the bar and not realize it? And then you failed to pay attention? Because I've, I've pissed people off in bars before. And I don't have a problem because I'm, I've realized I've really offended someone who's shown some aggression. I go back to my friends and I'm watching them and I make sure they know I'm watching them so they can't sneak up on me. Uh, you know, we and that aspect is huge. We were talking about that the other day too. Like it gives you like sometimes worst case scenarios, but you're like, the real goal is not to get here at all. You yeah. miss a lot if you're here. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I had a flashback when I first even started Krav Maga. One of the things I found, I found a little strange is when we were doing certain groundwork, um, they would show like, okay, here's how you get out of uh, mount, you know, here's if they're choking you or here's how we, we get out of mount. And I remember thinking, when are they going to show how not to get mounted? Yeah. And I remember like, I was like, oh, wait, they're not showing that. It's like, well, how about like, why don't we show how not to get mounted instead mm -hmm. of just 
once you're mounted, how to get out. It's a lot harder to get out of mount than it is to just prevent the mount to begin with. So, but I mean, I think that's like any system. You're going to see things that you like, things that maybe um, you fill in the gap a little bit here, probably be a little bit better. Yeah. But that was something that I thought was always a little um, missing from Amagam. Yeah, don't get there. Like the Israelis love the situational thing, right? And uh, I like I very much agree with the don't let them get you there. Like I had there's an instructor, a famous instructor, somewhat famous on the island here. You know, before that, it's like okay, someone with a strong side control gets you in side control, you're stuck. And he was just like, you have to learn how not to get there because yeah, of course you're stuck. You know, so you have to train your reflexes how not to yeah, get there. Much. Don't sure. let that situation happen, like regard faster. And since yeah, yeah. then, my guard has gotten a lot better. People are just like, they have to, even if they get past my guard, because they're young, fit, or their skills much better than mine, I make them work for it. And if that was a self-defense situation, my yeah. guard's sufficient that I could have kicked them in the face like three times by then and got to my feet. Um, but then the application. Back in the day when um, I remember just, probably just learning holds and stuff. Cause judo is very good at holds because mm. you could win a match. You know, you can get an Epon from, from just holding holdouts. And I remember uh, my judo coach saying that the goal is not obviously to get here because holds are designed not to get out of. Mm. If you're able to put them on a hundred percent, the person you're holding is probably not going to get out. Mm. And, um, you know, you could definitely see, like, say you put a judo black belt down and you get someone who's not a black belt, but they're experienced and you say, everything's going to go just right. And you're going to hold them down and they know that hold really well. You're probably not going to get out, even the experienced person. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you have to be a lot better than the person that's holding you to get out of it. So that goes back to that concept. Like, how about let's not get here to begin with? And that's where sometimes I think certain training is not is not really focused on it's almost like if you get in this really bad scenario here's how you try to get out and you're like uh my training is not to get here it's yeah. you know the same idea sometimes people say um let's say wrestlers they'll say well they're not good at fighting off their back they're they they kind of suck at fighting off their back and my thing is have you ever <laughs> a wrestler on his back yeah you're not going to get him on his back very easily right their their training is all how not to get in that position yeah and unless you're better at wrestling than that person you're not going to get that person on their back for sure yeah. so that's which an you know funnily enough for for arresting people putting them on their back is not where you want them most of the time you want them on their stomach yeah. where they love to go judokans too or yeah. you want them on their side uh and you know that's the thing about the, the if you get a wrestler you get it and they don't understand how to put handcuffs on and what the best positions are you end up teaching people the wrong things because i don't want people on their back it's really hard to handcuff someone who's resisting if they're on their back i don't want them on their back you know yeah um and so understanding that that context and application now uh, I, i'm assuming you've listened to whatever john danaher has put out in podcast wise recently he did a whole bunch of them um i you know everybody knows john right yeah he is a huge name in 
and uh, BJJ or martial arts in general. Yeah. I, I, I don't keep up with him, you know, specifically. So if you're like, what, I, I know he's put some, I mean, I do know the whole thing about they went to Puerto Rico. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now they're in Texas and they split. Yeah, the drama. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Like, yeah. wait, what? Is this really a split? I mean, I, I all of that stuff. I know that he put together, um, and one of my students grabbed it, but I haven't seen it myself. Uh, floor, uh, what is, what does he call it? Um, feet to floor. Yeah, like, yeah. Together, like uh, from what I understand, like, um uh judo type takedowns that are good for a, a bjj person yeah. but yeah what were you referring to john well, so basically why he's so successful as a coach is because oh, wow. he understands combat as a mm -hmm. holistic thing he understands the human mind as a as it pertains to combat he's not just teaching techniques he's not just teaching stuff that doesn't work but he what he was talking about is like I forgot which one of them, like he was on Lex Friedman, which is like intellectual, like martial arts through the roof and, you know, and Rogan and all these. And I forgot which one, but he was talking about, and, and my wife was listening too. And she's like, oh my God, like she's very intellectual as well. Um, he's, why are you guys so good? And he's about, you have to teach the fear. He's like, I basically, we put each other in the worst positions. And so what he was talking about is why are his good guys so good at submitting people, finishing? And he was saying it's because he trains them not to be scared to risk the submission. Because a lot of the time you risk submission, you put yourself in a bad position. And so how they dealt with that is you put each other in horrible positions all the time, knowing that you, mentally you're comfortable getting out of those. So if your submission attempt fails, it doesn't matter. Because if it, you get put in a bad position as a result of that failure, your mind isn't panicking, saying, mm. oh, shit, you can, you know, you can get out of it and get another submission. And just yeah. his understanding of that is why he's had so much success. And that aspect is, I think, the Gracies don't do so well at. Even though they talk and write, I don't see it in Gracie combatives. I don't see it in, in, in the training. They have to start thinking about the mind, the application, what's yeah. our goal, right? If you know you're not going to die in a match, which they're not, um why be scared of uh going for risky submissions like why be scared and if it's a points thing well if you finish the points don't really matter do you and that's just really understanding where he's coming from and it, it's like i'm you know i'm guilty of what he's talking about being scared of putting myself in a bad position and not going for submissions and it's like wow it's just like he really gets it yeah. yeah, a couple comments on that. I, I think Gordon Ryan was talking about that too, where, um, you know, that that YouTube that where Craig Jones almost got him in his, uh, the straight, the Juji Gatami straight arm bar, mm, yeah. but Gordon ended up, you know, getting out of it. But he he took a lot of damage to his yeah. arm. Yeah. You know, that that was um, that was amazing. You know, I yeah. mean, I think that that got like millions of hits or that was a crazy, like, um, crazy fight. Yeah. And Hickson mentioned in his last, that podcast we were talking about where when he was younger, he goes, I was like a teenager. And then this, this, uh, you know, I was training with men and this one guy got me. And I think it was, um, I can't remember if it was, I think it was probably like a head and arm, like Keza Gatami. Mm. And he's like, I couldn't get out. I started to panic. 
I started crying afterwards. And then I went home. I had my, my, one of my brothers rolled me up in the carpet. So I would stay there. And he's like, in Rio, it was so hot. Um, I just so I could get comfortable with it. So I think, I think that that type of training is important. Like we, for instance, with, um, especially if you're doing a competition team, mm. you might have the best guys in the room. Like no one mounts them maybe. Because, I mean, if they're the top guys in the studio and no one can get certain things, you still got to practice it and put them in bad positions because doesn't maybe it's not going to happen here, but it's going to happen someplace else. You know, on the competition, Matt, you've got to put yourself in bad positions, um, especially in like a combative sport, for sure. Um, so, yeah, but I'm not familiar with, the, you know, the, a lot of. I know the Gracie combatives gets a lot of attention. I probably should look into it, but I really haven't looked into, you know, really what it entails. Without offending them, it's cringeworthy I, I, as a Krav Maga instructor. Yeah, I, can't on it I really don't know much. For, the only thing I know is don't they teach their Gracie combatives like to students first before they even go into possibly that i'm not sure about and it's more like their self-defense thing is that kind of yeah well i just it's the way they're the, i could be wrong because they could have changed it but it just seems like the way they teach it is the way they used to teach it like 50 60 years ago and it just like you know because mm -hmm. one, one of the things that i tell people this all the time it's like nobody thinks of this is that okay a hundred years ago mm -hmm. who knew who knew how to do martial arts who knew how to really fight well, it's the wealthy people like the Gracies or the people that they pay to learn it and defend them. Because for most of human history, the average human being was just like useless, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Now we have this perception of the Internet, like everyone knows everything. Well, I, I mean, that's still not true because let's say maybe 5% of the world trains reasonably consistently and then a small percentage of the world actually trains to a high level. Mm -hmm. That's still a lot of people who are untrained, but even the untrained now can go on YouTube. Why, like in street fights, people start to mimic what they see on the UFC. So they, they're not coming from a place of nothing now. They're coming from a place right. of something. So you, any athletic idiot who watches enough MMA could probably pick up a few things and do quite well on the street unless they run into a trained individual. Yeah, um, yeah they can get together even with their buddies in the backyard and just yeah. Right? Yeah, so a lot yeah, a lot of that stuff doesn't work that much anymore because it works great against complete useless yeah. people, but it's not going to work against someone who has even a little idea about resisting. Yeah. Uh, unless you have a high skill level, of course. Yep. Um, so things have changed. Who was the UFC fighter that he passed away during, uh, what was his name? He went, I mean, we're talking about- uh, Ever Tannen, uh, Evan yeah. Tanner. Yeah, was, Ever he Tannen. was the one who went into the desert, right? And he ended up- Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember yeah. he made a comment once that he learned jujitsu, you know, basically just watching. And, you know, if I'm not mistaken, he came from a wrestling background. So for him, it was probably easy to learn it. You know, he can kind of adapt and, and get an idea. He's good at grappling holding the body from wrestling. And he, um, you know, he, he did really, really well, but um, yeah. One, remember Mike Wolf, I was telling you about yeah, uh, yeah. Well, super cop at our school. Cause he trained, I mean, this guy is unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, he made a comment about that too. He goes, you start with the MMA craze going, 
he's like, you did start to see like, you know, people who were just not really trained, but they just watch things. They watch MMA. They, you know, maybe they get together with their buddies and we're looking more like, you know, the younger male audience, right? Who, um, unfortunately, right? That's where a lot of problems happen. Yeah. crazy. Yeah. And he goes, you know, they, they try stuff on you. They try to guillotine you with stuff. And it's just, you, you can see that um, having that exposure with information out there at your fingertips that it does does have people trained yeah and actually interesting you bring up the point so like and i'm I'm not a master wrestler or anything by any means i just teach from what i I, what i know but if i've i've had wrestlers sitting in the corner when i'm teaching single legs and stuff and i don't want to teach a single leg where i shoot my head on the outside i know they arch up and go around the back i don't teach that in krav maga and they're like oh that's the way you got to do it it's good i'm like here's the thing Every idiot will pull a guillotine, and unless you have the skill not to panic, you screwed up. And the other thing is, most of the time you're gonna like DDT yourself on the concrete, okay? So I always teach it head, you know, ear to hip, head down the facing the middle line, because you have to think about, I can't take that head hit to the concrete, even if I could on a wrestling mat. So again, it's understanding the context. If, uh, you know, a D1 wrestler, I'm not going to tell, a, you know, that level of wrestler what to do. Right. They're going to run circles around me. But if they're teaching that to cops, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. Because how many cops are going to get to your skill level to avoid that problem? They're not. So you have to teach them the techniques that keeps their head protected and doesn't allow their head to get smashed in the concrete, even if you take the takedown. Uh, yeah. and so that, that's kind of what I, you guys, I know you wanted to talk about sort of the policing aspect is, it doesn't matter how good you are. You, you can't just teach it to cops. You have to understand all the possibilities of what can go wrong for them and try to teach what will work while avoiding those, those concepts. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting world when everyone thinks they're right. <laughs> it is a very interesting world. Now, I have to ask you a question before I forget, because you had mm. said you have one of the, uh, did you say one of the only Kramaga schools in the area? So... One of the are more consistently surrounded by like BJJ schools and you're the guy to go to for Krav Maga training. Sort of. Um, complicated question. <laughs> the So, I mean, there were schools here before I came. Like I learned from some people. But when, when jiu-jitsu took off, it took such a huge part of the adult market that if you couldn't appeal to people, you basically shut down. And a lot of the schools shut down. So when I say I'm one of the only Kramaga schools, there are others, but I'm the only one that's running a legitimate program where there is real-time development up the rankings locally. Okay. Uh, there's like IKMF here and whatever, and the instructors are good. They know what they're doing, but they're not developing people. Sorry if you're listening. They're, you're not doing that. If you're teaching pistol disarms their first day, I, I despise that. Um, I think there's so much wrong with it, but that's what people want to learn. And you, it's your job as an instructor to educate them. No, you're not learning that yet. So I'm the only one with like a, a consistent, legitimate program that's developing people mm-hmm. as far as that. And everyone knows come to me for Kramaga, but I'm fighting an uphill battle against the MMA guys or the jiu-jitsu or the established individuals, regardless of their style in the city, because they don't like me, a lot of them, because I am I have a big mouth, I don't hold back, I call bullshit. Um, so I don't play the social game enough, and getting police contracts or working with police in Canada is exceptionally difficult, and you got to play the politics, and I don't do that. 
right? Half the stuff I say on this podcast, automatically someone's going to hear it and be like, nope, we can't learn from that guy. Uh, even if I, I'm one of the guys who needs to learn from, and if you don't want, there's a guy I just had on a podcast a while ago who used to run the ERT here and he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. So he's, you know, more, more of them are going to go to him and by all means, <laughs> absolutely. He knows what he's doing. Um, but in the absence of having a guy like him, it runs into this situation where the cops are going to want to learn from the wrong types of people. Um, well, it sounds like you were saying, though, you expand, though, you you're training jujitsu, too. Oh, of and, course. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that starts adding so much to what you have to offer. Yeah, because now I know if like for private lessons, I can teach you jujitsu. I can teach you basic judo. Like I'm not going to teach you to the level of a joke, but I, I know enough that, hey, here's some judo throws. Here's some rip, double and single leg takedowns. Here's here's a basic uh, grappling stuff. Um, depending on what the needs of the people, um, people he here in Vancouver don't like to pay money for private lessons. So we cannot get the, like I charge what I charge, but it means I don't get as many private lessons. And to be honest, I don't like teaching Kramaga privates. I love teaching jujitsu privates, but I'm still a purple belt. So they'd rather go to a black belt, which is reasonable, uh, cause there's so many in the city. So it's, it's, every city is different. Vancouver is a weird place. You cannot take the models. You try in other cities and apply it here it just doesn't work like uh covid for example a lot of people here are freaking out because they think they're going to do shut down the businesses again which i want to smack metaphorically smack these people for even thinking that um but it's like i know that the culture here is just because government is saying stuff and just because people are saying stuff the way people behave here is very different versus toronto if everyone's saying we need to shut down we need to shut down we're gonna because in bc even if I talk to people, they're like, yeah, of course we need to shut down. That's the, the healthy thing to do. It's like, then you watch all the people breaking all the rules. So it's a very weird place here where what people say and what people do are not the same thing. And if you don't understand that, uh, you're going to have a panic attack. <laughs> a lot of people do who, if they come from a very rigid, like what they say is what they do. It's just, it's laid back here. So it's a, it's a hard place to get a feel on. And a lot of businesses from America that try to do well here don't because it's just a different market like i know when um uh when zellers in canada got bought out by target and they thought and this isn't specific to vancouver they thought they could just change the brand name and their brand would do enough to succeed and then they end up just closing it all a year and a half later after a fortune because different markets, different approaches. You got to realize the big box store model doesn't really work in Vancouver. We don't have, uh, I mean, Canada, we don't have the population to do it. Unless you're a really established brand, then you have one, maybe two stores. That's it. And people will come to you. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, people always forget about this, applying the model from one country to another. Just, it doesn't, it doesn't transition. So like when I said to you, Kramaga is not that popular here. Um, Part of the reason that I've, you know, got out of some of the Israelis, twist their arm a little bit, is if they come, even, it doesn't matter how big their name is. Like I could get a Yel Yanilov to come here. He's not going to get a hundred person seminar in pretty much any city here. He's going to get 20 people. Wow. Even in Toronto, you're just not going to get it. Because in America, in, 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 you, you, you'll, like in New York, you could just the people, the amount of people there, you're going to get a hundred person seminar. Yeah. Um, and so the Krav Maga world 
in many They'll ways. They'll have a hundred person class. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. If you have a hundred person class in a yeah. Vancouver, like I want to know what you're doing because I don't yeah. see that anywhere. Um, so they kind of turn their back on Canada for that reason. We don't have the numbers. Uh, people don't like to commute here. People don't care what your name is. If it's not convenient for them, they're not going to do it. So Kramaga never really took off in this city or in this country even. In the early days, it failed to really explode and all the big organizations just abandoned it for lack of a... They'll always be like, you, if you want to get certified, go to America. And we're like, no, come up here, come up here. Um, and even when I, I like, I don't like to bring people for seminars anymore. If they want to do a instructor certification, maybe, but even then it's not even worth it for me to bring them up because I got to pay their hotel. I got to pay for their basic thing. And it's just it lack of development is of Kramaga. And then when MMA and, and jujitsu took off, it's I'm fighting with those guys. And a lot, a lot of those guys look at me either. They think I'm nuts because the things I the way I approach things as a, in life or, my skill in jujitsu is not as good as theirs, so they think I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. So it, you run into this, but I'm like, listen, I, I'll set. You want me to set up a really effective self-defense seminar for eight hours? I guarantee you I can do it better than you. I guarantee it. Mm -hmm. But you have to get them to bite, and since mm -hmm. I'm not a salesperson, it's an uphill battle all the way. <laughs> so, Jonathan, what do you what do you see as the future of just martial arts? Then, so you don't see it in Kramaga in Canada. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm always going to teach that if I was to open up a my own like because I rent from a friend of mine, I've had my own schools, but it's a really tough market here. So I've closed. I rent from a friend of mine and they teach jujitsu and uh, kickboxing mm -hmm. uh, and I do my jujitsu with them. But if I was to open up my own permanent location again, uh, I would have probably two days or a little bit of Krav and the rest jujitsu. One, because I like jujitsu. And by the time I'm a black belt, I'll be able to teach it. And if I'm to run a kid's, kid's martial art, which you have to do if you really want to do well, because if I teach, if I say I'm going to teach kids Kramaga here, well, in North America, that's uh, hard to sell. Uh, here, people are like, oh, I don't want my kid killing each other. I'm like, what the heck have you been reading, man? So I would just have a kid's martial arts program. Mm -hmm. And I would run day one, day two is is self-defense and kickboxing boxing and day twos you know are the grappling where i teach them the jiu-jitsu so i'd say day one parents do shorts and t-shirts day two they're in a gi you know so that's how how uh, i would run it and uh, the kids will learn krav without realizing they're learning krav basically yeah the kids uh for us i know they enjoy like the striking aspects we kind of pull more for krav maga um and then they like their jujitsu. i mean all kids like to roll around and wrestle yeah and then they like the, um, you know, they like the Kali aspect of the, uh, you know, Kali, we do all the, the sticks, the blades. They, you know, you give padded weapons that they work with. I mean, the kids go bananas over that. So mm. that that's a little bit of a mix that we give them. Um, so, yeah, but um, that is something that um, I find to attract a lot of the kids. You know, I like to give them a little bit of a di diverse program. Mm. And then when they're an adult, they can pick, you know, they, yep. they have the really good skill sure. levels to do. And, and you know, because I'm sure you know this, you get parents who have no real idea about anything, but they saw something on the Internet. So that's why I said for kids, I think if you want to teach them Krav or integrate self-defense, you need to sell it as a kid's martial arts program. 
Yep. Because every parent is like, I want my kid to do martial arts. It's like, oh, what are they going to learn? Well, I'm going to teach them self-defense, wrestling, judo, yep. jiu-jitsu. And then they're like, oh, wait, I can learn all of that for one price. And then boom, it's mm. easier that way. Um, yeah. I haven't been able to try that because I need to open up another school. It's, I'm a, several years away from even thinking about that again. Um, are you going to wait till you get your black belt? Yeah, then? I would. In the Because there's the jiu-jitsu community here is so developed. Like, so my... Uh, coach Mike Hansen. I just had him on a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. When him and his partner started, they were blue belts, and that was ten or twelve years ago. Well, back then you could do that; you could get away with that. Not yeah, happening that, anymore. Not anymore. happening. Back in the um, day, you were yeah. a purple belt, you were like, "Whoa!" Yeah. Um, so you purple need a black belt, one hundred percent, if you want to run a program. Uh, and I did. I was running a program a little bit as a early purple belt. I did bring in another person to help me teach, um, and I think it's a mistake to do that now. You mm-hmm. just you can't. Uh, I didn't have a good enough grasp of the system yet, so I would wait for my black belt. Um, also, it's a financial thing. Vancouver is an exceptionally expensive city. Anything you ever read that says Vancouver is one of the most livable cities in the world that's been paid for, it's bullshit. As it's livable as in what we get here is amazing, but as far as money. Uh-uh. It's it's one of the top five most expensive cities in the world because the salaries you're getting in compared to what things cost, they do not match up. So like Manhattan, you're getting paid. Yeah, Manhattan's expensive, but guess what? You're getting hundred, two hundred thousand a year, no problem. Well, yep. Good luck getting that in Vancouver, unless you want to be one of those twenty four seven sales types, and I am not that. And they, those some of those guys can make fortune no matter what they're selling, but it's just like. It's a difficult city. And, and so to rent a 6,000 square foot space like you have, which is amazing in Vancouver, you're looking at $10,000 a month probably in, in a place. And good luck getting the student base for that kind of facility. It's not happening, you know. They took um, risk, man. Yeah. Once you sign that lease, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Even a place that's $3,000 a month, if you don't have the students... Mm-hmm. You're not paying rent and all your bills and paying yourself a living salary. It's not happening. The the schools that are doing that here usually started a long time ago mm-hmm. and have built up their programs from 20 years ago or they are catering to the MMA or jiu-jitsu people, which they can get the numbers. Mm-hmm. And even then, they don't have huge facilities. right? Even the biggest schools here, you're looking at like a 1,000 square feet mat space only, usually. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're just not because the real estate is so expensive. And, you know, a lot of people, good prime real estate is not worth it for a good for for martial arts school. And the cities often uh, they're zoning. You're going to be stuck in some industrial area, which is not accessible. So it's a it's a very tough city to succeed in uh, for martial arts and for everyone who's survived for through COVID, like good for them. A lot of people had to close their doors. Jiu-Jitsu community did did pretty well. But I don't have my, I don't have my, you know, f- fingers on the pulse of like Taekwondo or karate guys. But I imagine they got wiped during COVID. Um, since yeah, we had a lot of uh, martial arts schools that closed. A lot of them have closed too. Like who done? Um, I mean, just throughout the years, if you did a martial art that was like karate or taekwondo or kung fu or something that I think most people think of it as like an older kind of martial art. Most of them I've seen, they've closed their doors. It's just not where people are looking to study that. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so then when COVID hit, that probably really just yeah. Yeah. But um, Jonathan, I have to like um, go in just a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I I can just say I am. I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And I hope your listeners get something out of that. Hope so too. Yeah. Just make sure you share it too. A lot of the guests uh, oh, don't like to share stuff and then they'll, they'll wonder why, why is no one listening? Hey, did you share it? Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so just to wrap up, uh, do you have any last words like that you want to make sure you get to your students or anyone who wants to think about coming training with you? Well, I would just say, like, even if there's people listening that um, if they're even instructors, I mean, been in the business for a long time. One of the things that I pride myself with is, um, you know, I run a very um, uh, just a school that's well run, you know, just um, um, if anybody has any questions about like just running a school, I mean, to always reach out to me, I'd be glad to help them because been in the industry a long time. And um, I would say that's that's one of my skill sets is just to be able to run a business doing it full time. A lot of people do it part time. Uh, for me, it's full time. And I'd be happy to help anybody if they want to uh, to chat about that. Awesome. And now where would people find you on the internet, email, social media? Where, where do they find you? Yep. Well, they could find me um, on Facebook. They can find me on Instagram. They can find me under the school name, CT Pramagan MMA. On Facebook, they can find me also just under my name, Dennis Hill. And um, email, I don't know, um, it's um, info at CT And, um, you know, if you put that in the show notes, they can always reach out yep. to me. Awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Have a good one, Jonathan. Nice chatting yeah. with you. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. 